The scripture today is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch for me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of the sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of God. In Psalm 1, uh, we are told that that as believers in God, as people that that seek after Jesus, that we are supposed to meditate on the teachings of God day and night. And particularly in Psalm 1, it's talking about uh, the teachings that exist in the Bible. That we're supposed to meditate on that day and night. We're supposed to sit with that every day uh, and just kind of let it soak into who we are. You know, most Christians in America, when they're asked about that, and, and this has been in a survey, most Christians in America say that they agree with that statement. And then the next question says, how often do you read the Bible? Like, like do you read it or do you like, go to church, and then someone else read it, and then they tell you what it says, and then somehow, uh, like, that counts. You get what I'm saying? It's, it's not that, like, going to church and, like, hearing someone that read the Bible is, is bad. It's a really good thing. But, but how do we make sense of this idea that Scripture tells us that we are supposed to be meditating on God's Word, that we're supposed to be uh, sitting with it, soaking it in, having it uh, become a part of who we are. And yet the majority of Christians in America indicate on a survey that they hardly read the Bible at all. And I don't say that to like try to overly convict you in the first three sentences of the sermon already. I say that because I think it's just, it's just honest. It's just a window into who we are. Something culturally is happening. Something's happening in the church of America that is resulting in us having uh, this be, be the normal, be the typical behavior of a Christian in America. Most Christians indicate that they, that they find the Bible to be confusing, that they find it to be frustrating, and they, they find it simply beyond their ability to comprehend. And what results is that they don't read it. So, so what they do is they say, there's somebody else in my congregation who doesn't find it as confusing, who doesn't find it as frustrating, and, and maybe has some ability to comprehend it, so I'm just going to like outsource that. Uh, to, and I'm not going to say who it is, but you know, I'm, I'm just going to outsource that to, to a particular person, uh, and then we just kind of listen. And then we just kind of 
uh, sit back, and, and then we go on with our weeks, and, and that's great, but we, but we don't open God's Word. Even though in God's Word, it tells us that we're supposed to be doing that. In God's Word, it tells us that we're supposed to be diving into Scripture, meditating on it, letting it soak in. And, and again, this isn't to overly convict, but, but it is true. Scripture tells us that this is where we're supposed to be. And I can definitely sympathize with this, with this impulse within the church. When I first started reading the Bible, I found it confusing. When I first started reading the Bible, I, I was going to the Bible, I was a, a new believer uh, in Jesus, and I was like, okay, I need some encouragement in my life, I need something that speaks to me. So I opened the Bible, and I started reading, and I found stories of God interacting with God's people. I found them to be mostly kind of ancient feeling, uh, and pretty mysterious to me. I found stories in the Bible. Again, I'm looking for encouragement, and I find stories of brutal, brutal wars. I'm looking for encouragement, and I find story after story of human failure. I find story after story of animal sacrifices, and, and never have I felt so separated from the time of the Bible. I'm like, what is going on here? I find stories after story of old laws that seem so different from from where I live, and yet I'm just, I'm going there for encouragement for my day. Like, what, what is going uh, wrong here? I came for encouragement, and I found mystery, and I found that I was lost, and that I was confused, and, and quite frankly, I then closed it, and then went to the expert on Sunday morning, who I felt like was an expert, and I just listened to sermons instead. And, and we do that, and it's like, I don't, I don't say that to say that, like, listening to sermons is bad. But what does it mean when we're supposed to go into God's Word? What does it mean when we're supposed to dive in? So we're in this sermon series. It's, it's been a short one. It was like two weeks ago, and then this week, and then we'll be on to Advent. Uh, but it's called How to Read Your Bible. And what I want to do in the series is I want to give you some tools in your toolbox that makes it that when you come to God's Word, that when you come to the Bible yourself, you don't feel totally lost in what's going on. That you can go to the Bible and you have uh, some tools to pull from that let you uh, not be confused. That let you not be frustrated. That let you maybe not give up as quickly as I gave up uh, when I first started uh, going to Scripture. In the Bible, uh, the, there's, there's many, I was going to say there's many written words. Uh, that is true. There's many written words. I mean, that's, that's part of the barrier, is we're going to this, and it's, and it's written literature, and it's in different genres, or it's in different like categories of literature. Um, maybe you don't know, 43% of the Bible is written in what we call narrative. So mostly kind of a storytelling form. 43%. Uh, this is historical things. This is also things like Jesus' parables. Um, but, it, but it's all narrative. 33%, so one-third of the Bible is poetry. One-third, right? One-third is poetry, the Psalms, uh, different songs that people think, uh, sing. A lot of the things that the prophets say in the Old Testament, they're saying it within poetry. And 24% is what we call prose discourse, which is, just means like normal speech, right? Like just, just talking normal. So uh, when Paul writes a letter, in the New Testament. He's, just giving, he's, not, he's not storytelling, but he's not writing poetry. It's just like a normal speech. It's called prose discourse. There's letters, there's sermons, 
uh, in the Bible. And, and today we're going to focus just on biblical narrative, so just on that 43%. But I think when we go to the Bible, it's often where we go. We go to different stories that are taking place, trying to understand them. Most people uh, in our time, we just open the Bible and we start reading. And we give little to no thought of what kind of literature it is, what kind of thing we're entering into, how that can help us with interpretation. And it's fine to start with, but it's really frustrating to stay there. And I think that's what those, those surveys indicate. A lot of Christians in America, they've, they've started reading the Bible, and, and they're at this frustrating place. And then they just kind of go, the Bible's frustrating, and they close it. And they set it on the shelf, and it gets really dusty. And then by the time you pick it up, the next time you actually have to like dust it off. I've sadly been there, right? You have to like clean it off, and then, then you open again, and then you just kind of get frustrated again as you go into it. You know, and it can just be really unfortunate because I believe the Bible is accessible, but that doesn't mean it's not complex. So we're going to talk about a little bit of this, this complex. What's going on? And why, why is this hard? One of the things, and, and I really believe this when I study Scripture, is that the biblical authors, and by this I mean the human authors that wrote it down, uh, the human authors are divinely inspired by God. So God is doing something in them. But that doesn't mean that they don't have talents and that they don't have skills. I believe that, that certain people were picked to write the Bible and that um, I like to use the word that they were literary geniuses that the Bible is written through. And there's, there's things that are so important when you look at Scripture. So uh, there's this idea in some traditions of the church that it was almost like someone was just kind of zapped and they closed their eyes and their hand moved. Uh, and the Bible was written, and I say it kind of jokingly, but, you know, maybe you haven't examined this yourself. You know, what, what is the role of the human author? So, so I'm coming with the assumption that they're, yes, divinely inspired, but they're also literary geniuses, which means we're not coming to simple things. We're coming to complex things written in a different time, in a different culture, but we can understand this, right? We, we can enter into this. We can do the hard work to figure it out and to interpret it. It's not that hard. I mean, it's, I don't know, if you finished high school, like, I mean, you, you studied how much math? Like, that stuff was hard, right? <laughs> there were so many different things you had to do uh, to figure it all out, and all built on each other. This is, it's nothing like that. We can do this. You know, we as the church, we can go into God's word, and we can understand it. The other assumption I'm coming with the tech, or at the text with, is that this is not video camera footage of what's going on. And I explained that more a couple weeks ago. Um, I believe these, these stories truly happened, but I believe the biblical authors separated sometimes by time and sometimes by space are able to look at an event of the past and tell the story in a way that communicates something to us as the readers. So, so we do this all the time. You know, whenever, whenever you tell a story, you're telling it through your own interpretation of what happened. Right, and we tie different things in, and and you know, I'll tell a story about my kids to to my mom who lives a number of states away, and, and she wants to know some of the details, but but all she can't see a video camera footage of what my kids did, right? She sees my interpretation of what happened, and as we enter into biblical narrative, we're we're seeing what happened, 
But then there's this other layer where we're, where we're hearing from the author what's going on, and they're telling us the story in such a way that it's an instruction on our own lives, that we can learn from it. So they're telling us a simple story, but it's teaching us ethics, or it's teaching us some other lesson, how to live with this God, how to be with God. So they take an event, and they tell the story, and they communicate something beyond uh, kind of the, the video camera footage of what's happening. And I believe this whole thing is led by the Holy Spirit, that God is doing a creative and, and masterpiece kind of thing here. He's communicating exactly what he wants to communicate, but, but we need to kind of tap in to what's going on. So two weeks ago, uh, I talked about two skills that we can come to Scripture with, that if we understand these two skills, it, it becomes more fruitful. It becomes uh, even, dare I say, more fun uh, to go to the Bible. And that was the skill of plot, and it was the skill of characters. So the skill of plot, just real simply, again, listen two weeks ago if you missed it, but the skill of plot, real simply, is that you can't read a small section of a story and think you understand all of it. It means that, that the Bible's broken up, and it's not just the books of the Bible. Each one is broken up, and there's different uh, stories or different things going on, and you need to read the whole thing in order to interpret the little part. And then sometimes you interpret the little part, it helps you understand the whole thing. You know, it kind of bounces back and forth, right? And, and we, we do this uh, in any kind of reading we do, but it's also true of the Bible. The second one is biblical characters are really important in how they are fleshed out, how they are explained, helps us really understand what's going on. So, so they're developed in a way that helps with the communication. And they don't tell us as much as we want to know. Modern audiences, we come to the Bible, and, and it's not our kind of storytelling. And, and it, we become, it becomes really clear when you think about the character. Let me ask you this. What did Moses look like? Uh, kind of difficult, right? I mean, there's verses that says he has a beard, so I guess he's got a beard, but like, it doesn't like sit at the beginning and explain what this man looks like. Right? We even get to that. I mean, that's why we have all these uh, different paintings and stuff that, you know, they all look different, right? So, so they're explaining people in a different way, you know, than we do. But when we are told what someone looks like, it's going to be important. We're told that David is handsome. And that's going to come into play if you continue to read David's story. We're told that Saul is, uh, King Saul, that he's really tall. It says he's head and shoulders above the rest of his army. And they all look up to him. And it's going to come into play. So when we are told things, it's really important. And we can kind of latch onto them. Uh, how did this character act? How did they behave? What kind of values do they have? What kind of ethics do they have? It's, it's really important to, to dive into that. But again, that was two weeks ago. So this week, we're going to look at a couple more things, and, and the first one is called setting. So all setting is, and this happens in any, any story, modern or ancient, is that the story is taking place somewhere, right? The story is taking place somewhere, and it's really important to, to know where it's taking place because it matters in what's happening in the story. And we do this. You know, where does Lord of the Rings take place? No one? Middle Earth. Thank you. This is a little interactive part. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't warn you. Uh, Lord of the Rings is in Middle Earth. 
Harry Potter is, is largely at Hogwarts, right? Batman lives where? Gotham City. Star Wars takes place a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away, right? I mean, it's just, it's just that's how the setting works. And that helps us understand as, as the readers, in this case, we, we come with some assumptions. We can understand what's going on. It's exactly the same in the Bible. So does it matter where the story of Daniel takes place? It absolutely does. <laughs> it absolutely matters that because, because the part of it is the biblical authors assumed that we knew something about that. And they're communicating so much by just saying, in Babylon, you know, this happened. There's, there's a whole encyclopedia that, that they are communicating in that one sentence. And it's, again, it's so important. Again, we, we do the same thing in our storytelling. If I started telling you a story, and right away I said it took place in the Wild West, you would have an encyclopedia of knowledge to know what that story is probably going to entail. It'll probably have a cowboy. It'll probably have a sheriff. It'll probably have a guy in a white hat and a guy in a black hat. Uh, it has all these things. And if I just threw aliens into the story... Uh, maybe that would be like really creative on my part as the storyteller, but, but I'm, I'm like playing with your genres on purpose, right? I'm like, I'm like messing with it to kind of communicate something. And sometimes the biblical authors do that. And again, we can miss that if we don't see what's going on. Uh, they're communicating so much by so little, and they're tapping into this, this encyclopedia of knowledge that, that people had. Now, the good thing for us is that encyclopedia of knowledge is most of the time the Bible itself. So the more we read the Bible, the more we have access to the, this ancient head, head, what she communicated was that it's beginning to look like Christmas outside. Right? She's, ta- like, I, I'm, I'm, she's assuming that I know this Christmas song and that it's, that it's filling into this entire encyclopedia of knowledge. So the biblical authors are doing the exact same thing. They're saying, in Babylon, this story happened. And they're tapping in to all of this shared knowledge. So these settings, they invoke memories. They invoke emotions sometimes. They, they ex- make us expect similar things to happen in similar places. So let's get into a, a Bible story here, and you'll see the same thing. Uh, just for example, um, let's talk about Egypt. In the Bible. Common setting, right? It happens over and over again. Egypt, it's this big, powerful empire. They're on the Nile River. Um, They're often depicted as oppressive and violent in the Old Testament. So the first time we encounter them is Abraham's story. Abraham is, is brought out of where he's from. He's brought into the promised land, and almost immediately a famine comes. And the first thing Abraham and Sarah do is they go to Egypt. And it starts building this encyclopedia within us. So what happens when they're in Egypt? Well, Abraham comes up with this great plan, great plan, um, that he's going to tell the Egyptians that Sarah's actually his sister. Right? You remember this? He says, Sarah is so beautiful that the Egyptians are going to, like, kill me and take her. But if I'm her brother, then they're going to, like, give me a bunch of stuff. Right? And Abraham thinks he's being so smart. 
And he goes there, and, and it works so well that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, takes Sarah, and he says he's going to marry her. And then God does something. And it may sound familiar. God sends plagues on Egypt. But Pharaoh doesn't know what's going on. So God sends these plagues, and eventually he finds out it's, it's because this woman that he's saying he's going to marry is, is already married to Abraham. And, and Abraham, uh, they're, they're able to leave, and, and they just like give them a bunch of riches and say, just leave us alone because these plagues are, are so brutal, right? So, so that starts to paint a picture of what Egypt is. Now, we know the story continues, right? The Israelites end up in slavery in Egypt. Plagues once again, right? So that's tying these connections. Uh, plagues once again. And, and over and over again in the Bible, when something takes place in Egypt, uh, this, this has built our encyclopedia. So this is called setting, right? So we're able to look at it and we're able to say, here's Egypt. It's this big, powerful empire. They're on the Nile. Because they're on the Nile, they often have crops when others don't. So in times of famine, other people flee there, but they're also known for their oppression and they're known for, for being powerful and being violent. So let me ask you this. Now that we have this encyclopedia, we get into the New Testament. Jesus is born. Jesus and, and his family need to flee for their life. And they flee to Egypt. And because we know the setting, our reaction is, is to like hold our breath. Something terrible, like you don't go to Egypt? We know, we know that from a dozen stories in the Old Testament. This is bad news. They go to Egypt. But what happens? They're safe in Egypt. So, so what is being communicated here? Now we understand the setting. So, so something complex has happened. It's like, it's like they threw aliens into the Wild West story, right? So, so they're doing something here. They're making us think. And, and what we can then conclude, and I think it is the right... Thing, uh, ...to do in the Bible. Uh, it's called design pattern. I can't come up with a better word, phrase than that to describe it. But what it means is is that there's repeated events, there's repeated phrases, there's repeated words and ideas in the Bible that we read over and over and over again, and they tie together. This is, this is how the biblical authors tied things together. So if you read in most modern English translations, it might give you like a little A or a little B, and you look down at the bottom and the footnotes, and it gives you a verse that is being kind of somehow connected together here. They didn't have that in the ancient world. How they did that was through these phrases and through these words, right? So, so real simple, you know, I mean, the, the, the infants thing, right? We're, we read that, and in our minds, we can see it. it. It just connects, like, oh, there's something way back in the Old Testament that I need to understand in order to fully understand this, right? So those strings, there's, there's a million of them through the Bible, and there's really, like, strong ones that are tapped into over and over and over again. And then there's some where like different things are linked. But, but once you start to see it, you're going to really start to understand what's going on here. You're going to really start to actually enjoy what's going on here. And, and again, this is not foreign to us. We do this in our own culture. If I said to you, may the force be with you, what movie am I talking about? 
Star Wars, right? My second Star Wars reference, same sermon. That's a good, good role. What if I said there's no place like home? Wizard of Oz. What if I said you're going to need a bigger boat? <laughs> Jaws, right? I mean, we do this. What if, what if I was making a movie and I wanted you to make some connection between my character's story and the story of Luke Skywalker in Star Wars? I, I could really flesh that out. I could do a lot. Or I could have my, my character leave for an adventure and have someone just say to them, may the force be with you. And you would make the connection. Right? You would do that because, because that's how story writing works. You would just tie into that phrase, that small thing. It's connected, uh, again, to a different encyclopedia of knowledge. But, but you would be able to make that connection. And the, and the Bible does it all the time. Now, part of the problem is, I don't know about you, but, but I normally read the Bible in English and we miss some of it. So that's where those footnotes can be really helpful. Or if you're like really into this, then like Bible software stuff. And if you're really, really into it, Greek and Hebrew are, are your friend. Uh, right? But if, you, if you're, you're like, I'm not going to be a Greek and Hebrew person, there's software. If you're like, I'm not going to be a software person, there's at least footnotes. All right? <laughs> all right? this, this is possible for everyone to do. But again, it's these phrases. It's the, it's the, there's no place like home, and then all of a sudden your brain goes Wizard of Oz. Like, I, I get the story. Uh, we're going to need a bigger boat. Your brain goes, okay, that's Jaws, right? Like, I, I get the concept of what's going on. And the Bible ratchets this up to 100. It's all over the place. I, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Has anyone ever noticed some of these in the Bible? You, you see little things, but there's, like, there's major ones. And once you start to see it, maybe you can tell. I don't know. It's exciting. There's, there's, like, there's a fun part to this. Uh, and, it, and it's like you're finally tapping into all this and, and you're like really getting what's going on. Let me, just, let me just show you. There's this, this pattern, this thread. It's a major one in the Bible and it's about human temptation. Starts in the beginning of Genesis. It goes all the way through Revelation. Human temptation is a common one. And it is tied to normally three words. There's three words that when you see these words, it's, it's hinting to you as the reader, this is about human temptation again. All right, This is about how humans choose once again to follow their own wisdom and not to follow God's wisdom. It starts with Adam and Eve in the garden. They're tempted by the fruit. They're tempted by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we read that they, these are the words, see the fruit, that they desire the fruit, and finally that they take it. Those are the three words. They see it, they desire it, and they take it. Again, this is, this is how the biblical authors do this. right? See, desire, take, and then everything falls apart. And it has these radical consequences for generations to come. And it almost always does. But that's the pattern. They see it, they desire it, and they take it. Now fast forward a little bit. We see Abraham and Sarah. They're in the promised land. God has promised them a child, and they don't trust God. Instantly, our, our brains can go, what tree are they going to? Right? They're trusting themselves, their own knowledge, their own 
a desire of, of good and evil. They don't trust God here. And they see Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian slave, one who was probably given to Sarah with the last thing we just talked about with Abraham. Remember, they left Egypt. They were given riches. They were given slaves. So they see Hagar. We're told that they take her. And then we're told that they do what is good in their eyes. And this abuse results in the birth of Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn son, but it's not through Abraham and Sarah. It's through this other means. Later on in the same story, Sarah gets very jealous of Hagar. And Abraham says, do what is good in your own eyes. And he abuses, or she abuses her, and she flees for her own life. And God saves her and rescues her in the desert. Fast forward, we're at Mount Sinai. This is, this is Aaron. He's the high priest. He's the first high priest. Uh, Moses is up on the mountain. He's been up there for 40 days. The people are worried, and the, they're going to build this golden calf and start worshiping it, right? A- Aaron sees the gold of the Israelites. He takes it, and he does what is right in his own eyes and makes the golden calf. Again, this thread, it's getting thicker, right? We're seeing Achan, now, now the Israelites have entered the promised land. They're, they're starting these battles. They're told, don't take any of the gold. Don't take any of the plunder. Just destroy all of it. Achan sees the gold of the Canaanites. He desires it, and he takes the gold. He does what is right in his own eyes. Here, here's a different one. It's, a, it's a slightly different, but it's, I think it's important. The story of King Saul, the first king. The people say they want a king. Uh, God uh, seems to be unsure. It, like the whole system has been set up that God is their king, and now they want, they want a king like the other nations, is what it says. Again, a good hint that this is not what you should be doing. They see Saul, head and shoulders above the rest of his army, this big, strong man. They see him, they desire him, and they take him to be their king. Right? So now we have a human and, and it's not even necessarily in the same way as, as like with Hagar, right? So they, they see Saul, they, they desire him, and they take him. And it leads to destruction. A couple more, there's David. David is on the roof. He sees Bathsheba. He desires her. And he takes her. And it starts this this story of his family being destroyed and his family being torn apart. Do you see what I'm pointing at here? You see how this works? Like, just by starting to know, and, and this is, there's more. <laughs> like, you could just go with that theme alone and, and just keep thinking, okay, what else is going on? And then you go to the Bible and you'll see these works. They, they see it, they desire it, they take it, and often it even tells you, and they did what was right in their own eyes. And And it's so helpful for understanding what's going on because now all these stories are tied together. Now now if I fully understand uh, the Garden of Eden, I I can better understand David. Right? You see how that works? But it also leads us with expectation. As we read it, we go, isn't there anyone that's ever going to, like, break this cycle? Isn't there... Somebody that's going to that's gonna come into this and break this, uh, this, this cycle that these humans have been doing this whole time. 
And it leads us looking into the New Testament for someone that's going to do it. And then we have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, read for you earlier. Jesus saw what was happening. We're, it's, it's how the story is told is he's faced with his greatest temptation. Does he avoid the cross? Does he avoid what he can see is coming up? And we get these words, and they mean so much more to us if we understand this thread. Jesus says, but not my desire, but your desire be done. You get how that connects there, right? He sees it. And, and instead of the desire and instead of the taking, he says, but not my desire, but your desire be done. The pattern flips. This happens so much as we go through the Gospels. The pattern flips and, and, and we can gain so much. It's not just about understanding uh, stories in, in the book of Genesis. It's about understanding Jesus. It's about understanding our Savior. It's about understanding who it is that, that we are disciples of, right? And yet it's so rich. That statement didn't mean a whole lot to me before I actually studied this. The statement is great. I'm glad he, he kind of submitted himself to God. You know, that was always kind of what it meant. But when you see that thread, and then you see finally there's someone who breaks it, then, then you just you cry out with, Hallelujah. Right? Finally, there's someone that, not my desire, but your desire be done, God, and then follows through. These design patterns are all over the place. I'm not certainly going to go through, through all of them, but I'll just mention a few more if you're curious. There's this design pattern of the wilderness. Just look up the wilderness. <laughs> Google it, <laughs> wilderness in the Bible, and you'll see so many times God's people, individuals, and then Jesus in the wilderness. Again, overcomes temptation. There's a design pattern of going through the waters. Noah is rescued through the waters, is what it says. And the Israelites come out of Egypt through the waters, and then they enter the promised land through the waters, and then we are told that through the waters Jesus is baptized. It just continues on and on and on. The list keeps going. And the point of this whole thing is it's not just we can understand the Bible more. I really don't think the point of our Christian walks is that eventually there's going to be a Bible quiz. There's some Christians that live that way. Is that they, they think maybe at like the end of times there's going to be this Bible quiz and it's like, did you get 80% on it uh, or 60%? I don't know what we even aim for. That's, uh, that's like a different religion. <laughs> that's not Christianity. Christianity is about Jesus. It's about having a Savior, right? So, so the point is not we understand the Bible to understand the Bible. The point is application in our own lives, that this is, these are lessons for us to learn about who we are, about who God is, about how we, how we walk with that God, how we journey with that God, how are we a disciple of Jesus. So um, I'll just end with this. The, in your bulletins uh, is a Bible reading plan. I like to do these each Advent. I think it's really a, a great way to uh, prepare ourselves for Christmas. 
Uh, this is called 30 Days in the Bible. And what I've done for you, uh, and the reason I'm bringing it up right now is it starts on Friday. All right, so, so be aware, you have Thanksgiving, give thanks to God. The next day, your Bible reading plan starts, all right? And it's on the back side, um, and, and we'll have it on the website and everything. But, but each day, you're given uh, Bible text to read, and it starts in Genesis chapter 1, beginning of the Bible, and the last reading is in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. So, so you're not going to understand it all, but we're going to, you know, if you're like listening to me and you're like, yeah, that sounds great, but my encyclopedia is not that big. I don't, I don't get the Bible well enough to do some of this stuff. It's just, it's newer to me, or I've never spent the time, or I've never, I just, I just don't have that tool that you're kind of assuming. This is the way that you get that kind of tool. All right, so, so it walks you through each day, uh, and this is, you know, seven days a week. All right, 30 days, and you're going to read the Bible, uh, these different sections, um, and it's the big stories. I've picked them on purpose to be the ones that, that for a lot of biblical readers are in that encyclopedia, right? So these are, these are some of the big stories in the Bible, and you can certainly read more. Go ahead, so, if something intrigues you, keep reading, uh, but, but let's do this together as a church. Right? The role in, in Scripture, the role of pastors is, is to equip God's people to be the church. And I don't want, the, you know, that I was kind of giving a caricature earlier of this, this person up front that's like the one that actually goes to the Bible. I don't want that to be our church. I have a desire that we are a church that, that goes to God's Word. That we can come together in these times and these can be equipping times. These can be times where, where I can help in whatever way I can to help prepare you to be the church out in the world. Uh, but I don't want to come to this time as, as the one who like read the Bible and then I pass it on to you. I, I want to come to this time uh, being able to, to focus us as a church and say, how do we live this out? This is, this is a little bit more like the halftime speech before you get back into that game. All right, then it is... Uh, the show itself, right? So, so this is part of the way that we do this. Is, and I would really encourage you, so again, there's one of these in each bulletin, but there's also a whole stack of them in the foyer. So uh, if you're like Susan and I, where we just get one bulletin for the two of us, uh, there's more out there. I made them half sheets, which I think is nice, because at least for me, they like fit in my Bible. You know, and you can hang on to that. Uh, the church's Facebook page, I'll kind of be posting each reading uh, each day if you would like to follow that way or just get reminded that way. Um, so you'll see that each day of it. But, but just a, a really important thing to do. Not only for our own faith, but the Bible tells us to. <laughs> so, so let me read Psalm 1, uh, 1 through 3 for you, and then I'll end in prayer. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water 
which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prosper.